Why do some people get it when it comes to Jesus and some people don't? You can have two very similar people who both hear the same things about Jesus, they both read the same things about Jesus. One of them will become a follower of Jesus and the other will turn their back on Jesus. Uh, One will say, Jesus is the Messiah, and the other will say, Jesus is a myth. So why? Why do some people get it and other people not? There are two different ways of answering that question. One that focuses on divine initiative and the other one that focuses on human response. And often they are set up as being mutually exclusive. The reason is either that God has not opened the hearts of a person to his son Jesus or that person has hardened their own heart to Jesus. And treating those two things as mutually exclusive inevitably leads to very long and complicated debates about predestination and free will that tend to go round and round in circles. Well, our passage today from Matthew chapter 11 provides a very helpful insight into this question because this passage is all about people's response to the Lord Jesus. And I want you to notice that we have both human responsibility and divine initiative. In the first section from verses 20 to 24, Jesus denounces certain people. And why? It's because they had not repented, even though they had seen all of the evidence of his miracles, human responsibility. But at the same time, in the second section, verses 25 to 27, we have divine initiative. The father has revealed these things to the little children and kept them hidden from the wise and learned. In Jesus' mind, there's clearly no contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Both things are true at the same time. So let's see how this works out in practice as we look at these passages this morning. In the first section, Jesus denounces the inhabitants of three Jewish villages, Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. These villages are all nearby to the Sea of Galilee. They're the places where Jesus did most of his ministry. In fact, we're told in verse 20 that these are the places where Jesus did most of his mighty works. The miracles of Jesus were not just clever party tricks. They were signs that pointed to his true identity. I hope you heard the sermon last week from the first part of Matthew 11. Uh, Did you notice how there uh, John the Baptist was supposed to have been able to work out that Jesus was the long-awaited one? Why is that? Because the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. All of those things promised in the Old Testament Jesus is doing the signs that point to his true identity. The Messiah has arrived. The miracles testify that God's king has come. But the people in those villages, even though they'd seen all the evidence, they'd seen where the signs were pointing, they, verse 20, did not turn in repentance. They didn't acknowledge the king of the kingdom. And, says Jesus, because of this, they themselves will be culpable on the day of judgment. Indeed, Jesus says in verse 21 that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for those cities. 
Tyre and Sidon were in Phoenicia, so not, not in Israel. They were non-Israelites. In fact, for much of Israel's history, they had been the enemies of God's people. But even notorious sinners like the people of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented had they had the opportunity that the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida had had. Likewise, verses 23 and 24, Sodom, which was a city destroyed because of its immorality, Sodom would still have been around had Sodom seen the evidence that Capernaum had seen. This passage tells us two very important things about human responsibility. Firstly, it tells us that we are culpable for rejecting Jesus if we reject the evidence that God has provided. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell was once asked, suppose you died and it turned out, after all, that God does exist. What would you say to him? Russell replied, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. God has provided more than enough evidence for these towns. And whether they couldn't be bothered to investigate for themselves or whether they have chosen to ignore it, they will face judgment on the final day because they haven't followed where the evidence took them. Secondly, this passage also tells us that those who know less will be judged less. That is, we are going to be judged on the basis of what we did with what we can know about Jesus. Those who had no opportunity to see his miracles will be judged less harshly. Now, for everyone here today, physically in the building or those watching online, I guess pretty much everybody in Australia and most of the Western world, that's not much of an out, is it? Because there wouldn't be too many people who could say that they have no knowledge of Jesus at all, and therefore those who have any knowledge of Jesus will be held accountable for how they have responded to the knowledge that they have. For those of us who are Christians, certainly for me, this makes me want to share the gospel more with people because if people are going to be judged with the little that they know, better that they know more about Jesus so that they could make up their mind on the basis of the truth. Now this is a passage which is all about human accountability. As I said at the outset, it's followed immediately by a passage that's putting the stress on God's sovereignty in making Jesus known. In verse 25, Jesus goes straight on to praise his heavenly Father. Why? Because he has hidden these things, hidden the things of the kingdom, from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. The wise and learned of Jesus' day, most notably the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they should have been the first to acknowledge Jesus. Again, referring back to last week, they were the ones who knew the Old Testament prophecies about what would happen when the anointed one came. But even though Jesus ticked all the boxes, he didn't tick the boxes for them. Jesus didn't meet their expectations of what a Messiah was going to do. And so they stubbornly rejected him as Messiah. However, there's no sense in the gospel accounts that God is being unfair to the wise and the learned by hiding these things from them. They can't see Jesus because they won't see Jesus. 
But at the same time, that's been God's plan all along, that you can only come into the kingdom if you become like little children. Here, little children is a metaphor. I mean, elsewhere I think it is literally true, little children come to Jesus. But here in Matthew's Gospel, it's a picture of the disciples. In fact, a couple of chapters later in Matthew 18, Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And it's clear he's telling his disciples, you must humble yourself like a child, that is, come in dependency and trust rather than in self confidence and arrogance. Now, I know we want to ask the question yes, but what came first? Did God hide these things first, and so that's why the wise and the learned can't see, or is it the other way around? Is it because of the arrogance of the wise and the learned that they can't see? And I want to say that that's the wrong question, or at least it's not the question that Matthew 11 is answering. It's like asking of the Exodus, did Pharaoh harden his heart first and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or was it the other way around? And the answer is, no, it's both at the same time. Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and both of those things are true, and Pharaoh was culpable for what he did, and yet all along it was God's plan to rescue Israel in the way that he did, but it's not sequentially one after the other, both are true concurrently. And the same thing here in Matthew 11. The people of that day are culpable, particularly the wise and the learned, because in their arrogance they reject the evidence for the Son of God. And yet at the very same time, that was always God's plan, that the only way you could come to his Son is in dependency and trust, like a little child. In simple faith, we need to recognise what Jesus says in verse 27. No one knows the Father except sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The reality is that the only way that we can know God is through Jesus. And the only way that we can know Jesus is if God reveals him to us. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus alone truly knows the Father. Jesus is the only one who can reveal the Father to us. Knowing God is never going to come about through our human reason. It can only come about through divine revelation. Salvation is hidden from the wise and learned because... They trust in their own rationality, in their own reasoning. Salvation is found by the little children who are prepared to put their trust in what Jesus has revealed to us of the Father. And it's to those people that Jesus offers rest. Verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labour, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The kind of rest that Jesus is talking about is explained in the next verse. Jesus offers rest for our souls. This helps to explain the kind of burden and weariness that Jesus is giving us rest from. It's not physical rest so much as a rest for our souls that takes away our spiritual burdens. There are two related spiritual burdens that people bear. The burden of sin and the burden of law-keeping. 
When we sin, when we reject God's way and we do our own thing, we carry the burden of that sin. The Bible uses a number of metaphors to describe what sin is like. Uh, sin elsewhere is like a contamination that needs to be cleansed. Uh, sin is a debt that needs to be paid. Sin is a legal charge that demands justice. Here it's a different metaphor. Here the metaphor is that sin is like a heavy weight, like a millstone tied around our necks that will one day drag us down to the depths. Now, some people experience the burden of that sin, that is, shame or pangs of conscience or something like that. Some other people might be completely unaware of their guilt and their shame. Indeed, they may even revel in their shame, but that doesn't change the fact that their sins are a heavy burden they cannot bear. What do you do when you know that you have done the wrong thing and that there is nothing that you can do to make it right? Some people try to solve that problem by doing their best to please God by keeping his laws. And that only ever leads to the second kind of burden, which is the burden of law-keeping. Trying to keep God's laws as a way of impressing him, well, that will never work. Elsewhere, Jesus is scathingly critical of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who burden the people with the law. Jesus says they tie up heavy loads, literally they put burdens on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Here, the burden is all about law keeping. The teachers of the law had identified all of the individual commandments in the, in the scriptures. By one count, 613 commandments that the observant Jew had to obey. Now, it's impossible to keep the law perfectly. And indeed, even if you could keep the law perfectly from this point onwards, that still wouldn't solve the problem of all the things that you've done wrong in the past. As the Apostle Paul remarks elsewhere, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we only become conscious of sin. Those who are burdened by sin or burdened by the weight of law-keeping, well, it's to people like that that Jesus says, come to me and find rest for your souls. Jesus gives us rest from the burden of sin because he bore our sin for us. Hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote, he took, our, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. What's happened to that weight, to that burden? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the burden, the sin of us all. And because Jesus has taken the burden of our sin, he also takes away the burden of law-keeping. Jesus did what no other person was ever able to do, perfectly keep the law of God. As Paul says in Romans 8, God did this so that the righteous requirements of the law would be fully met in us. At the cross, an amazing double exchange takes place. Jesus takes my sin and I take on his righteousness. 
As Paul says elsewhere, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't it beautiful? We are thus free from those double burdens. We're free from the burden of trying to find righteousness through the law because Jesus has done it all. We're free from the burden of our sin because Jesus has taken that burden for us. But note carefully that this freedom is only found by those who respond to the particular invitation of Jesus here. Jesus says, come to him. And what do we do in coming to him? Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You only find rest for your souls if you come to Jesus, learn from him, take his yoke upon you. The yoke was a wooden bar that was placed across the shoulders of a pair of oxen to keep the oxen working in tandem. To be yoked to Jesus, then, means uh, walking with and working in sync with him. Another way of saying that is what Jesus says in verse 29, learn from me. Uh, That is, become a disciple of me, a follower who will learn from the master. It means letting Jesus set the direction of our life. Jesus tells us to to love and to forgive and to turn the other cheek and to be generous and to be compassionate, to feed the poor and care for the stranger, to preach the gospel to all nations and, and so much more. Being yoked to Jesus means letting Jesus set that direction for your life. But this yoke of Jesus is not like the yoke of the law, that impossible burden that just weighs us down. Jesus says that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Living the life of faithful obedience to Jesus is not a burden, it's a joy. Because it's how God made us to be. And once we find that groove, we are not like an ox that's kicking against the goad and straining against the yoke. We're actually part of Jesus' team. We're all working and heading in the right direction with him. Jesus isn't a harsh taskmaster. He is gentle and humble in heart. Jesus' invitation is to everyone here this morning, whether physically or or virtually. It's an invitation to come to him. Don't be like the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum who won't come because they ignore the evidence. Don't be like the wise and learned who trusted in their own understanding and not let Jesus teach them. Rather, come to him in childlike dependency. Come to him letting go of self-confidence and arrogance even in our ability and rationality. It's an invitation to come to him, to learn from him and to find rest for our souls. Release from the heavy burden of sin and rest from trying to save ourselves through our good works. Jesus invites you, come. Will you come to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that right now you would do your mighty work of revealing your son. To anybody here who is not sure who Jesus is, Father, we pray that you would open their eyes, 
that they would be able to turn to Jesus and come to him in childlike dependence and trust. And Father, in doing so, that they would find rest for their souls through Jesus the Master. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.